Hi, I'm Justin Wright. And I'm Nick Pye, and welcome to The Stretch Tapes. We run a business called Mangrove, working with some of the world's biggest companies and brands, as well as startups, including five of our own. And we focus on helping our clients grow and stretch their businesses sustainably. This podcast is a bit different from our normal approach, where we typically take a hot topic relating to business or marketing. In the past, we've looked at risk, EQ and empathy, and COVID, and we explore those topics in detail. Instead, this time, we're going to take a slightly longer podcast and look at a broader look of what makes a high-performing team so successful. This is something we've always had an interest in, and it's partly what triggered us to research and write our book, Stretchonomics. We were keen to understand the common drivers of success behind individuals, teams, and businesses that are repeatedly successful. How is it they're able to set themselves to stretching targets and deliver on them over and over again? And that's kind of core to our day jobs. We apply the principles and approaches we've uncovered to live challenges faced by multinationals and startups alike. In this podcast, we will go behind the scenes of an elite sports team to understand how they go about delivering consistently strong performance. The parallels between the worlds of sport and business can be problematic. I don't think anyone would suggest you can simply copy and paste the approaches from one domain to the other. Sadly, it's not that simple as we'll find out. However, there are plenty of insights from the world of elite sports that can help, we think, improve performance in the corporate environment. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I think it's also really fascinating to understand what goes on behind the scenes in order to deliver the performances you see on the pitch. So when we were thinking about who we might speak to in order to get the insight, it was a very simple decision. Nick and I are both big rugby fans and have spent plenty of cold, happy and sometimes frustrating afternoons at the Stoop Memorial Ground, the home of Harlequins, the leading rugby team playing in the English Premiership. Harlequins have a huge history as a top club. It's the only proper London club and home to a host of international players. In the last decade, they've won the Premiership and several domestic trophies, although in recent years, they've struggled to win any silverware. Over the past few years, we've been lucky enough to work with the members of the playing and coaching staff at Harlequins to bring their unique perspectives to some of our corporate clients, sharing their views on metrics and measurements, the importance of momentum, and managing talent. As well as having a progressive view of the world, the other joy of Harlequins is just how open and honest they are. I guess they have to be, as the results in their sport are irrefutable, and it's a brutally performance-driven game. But they're just as comfortable sharing the learnings behind their failures, as well as their successes. Yeah, we spoke to Paul Gustard, who's been head coach there for about 18 months or so. And he's an engaging and thoughtful individual whose reference points in our conversation range from Nietzsche to Yoda. Prior to his role at Quinn's, he was part of the England coaching setup. And before that, he was on the coaching staff of possibly the dominant side uh, of English rugby, Saracens. It was during his stint at Saracens that he created the concept of the Wolfpack, galvanizing the team by encouraging them to always look at each other for work and help to work together ruthlessly as one, as a Wolfpack does. To dramatise this concept, he once brought a number of live wolves into the changing rooms to spice up one of his team talks. Like I said, he's an interesting guy. And as you'll hear later, he's a firm believer in the power of having a common purpose and performance being driven by human factors. Given the athletes he manages and the brutality of the sport he's involved in, it's an interesting juxtaposition. As by way of introduction, let's hear how, in typically honest fashion, he describes his roles and a little bit about how he talks about Harlequins. I suppose when I when I came into the club, there was five things that I wanted to wanted to get right. Um, so, so the first thing, you know, were two kind of on field issues, if you like. There was two things that clearly the team was struggling with in terms of a, a performance side. So the defence of the team wasn't good enough, and uh, the set piece in particular, the lineup wasn't good enough. You know, for the first year, I think our defence went from you know the worst or the eleventh to the fourth best. Uh, we've yo-yoed a bit this year um, for, for a few reasons in that regard, but, but we're generally on an uphill trend from where we've been. Our lineup still we haven't fixed. Uh, and again, you know, we, we address that through recruitment. We address that through uh, quality of our coaching. Uh, we address that through you know, trying to motivate our players to perform. So those were two very on-field issues. The next three things, which is kind of, I had a very clear idea in my own mind about what it was, is we needed an identity. Um, you know, what are Harlequins? What does Harlequins stand for? And I think if you ask a lot of people in, in a rugby circle, there'd be an idea about an attacking rugby team, uh, people that play with confidence, uh, people that play with a joy. And for me, we kind of looked like we'd lost that when I was watching, watching Harlequins play as an England coach. And, you know, you know, often as a Saracens coach, watching Harlequins play, they were different five years ago to what I saw two years entering into the job. So the identity was very clear in my own mind about who we are and what we stand for. Uh, we came up with a simple mantra of fast, hard and finish. Uh, which means which means a few things, and I can elaborate on that further if you wish. Um, the standards of how we trained—that was the next thing I wanted to address. You know, there's a, there's a famous saying, whichever way you want to try and phrase it, but 
the thing that you're willing to accept during the week is all you can expect on a Saturday. So if we allow sloppy training, if we allow substandard performances, mediocrity, uh, people cutting corners, um, you know, people being late, all, all that kind of stuff which facilitates a, a sloppy environment, then why would we expect a better performance on a Saturday? So standards for me was critical and the intensity that we train was critical. And the final thing I, I kind of mentioned at the start was that we wanted to have a fun and enjoyment about who we are. Um, you know, Harlequins is a very special club, a very different club to, to, to most teams. And we wanted to keep our uniqueness, um, you know, the, the thing that's our central DNA to the club. You know, there's no other team playing in quarters. Um, you know, we've, we've got a jester. There's many people that are fun and life about us. We're the only real genuine London club. It's one of the greatest cities in the world. And we want to kind of foster that free spirit um, that has tended to run through the club. And, you know, the club motto itself is, is to never sleep. You know, we want to be innovators, we want to be inventive. Uh, and that needs to reflect our style of play and how we conduct ourselves as well. We also spoke to Rod Yap. Harlequins have a business academy, which takes the essence of the Harlequins approach to rugby and helps companies to apply it to their own performance challenges. Rod heads this up. As a former Royal Marine, Rod has a unique and fascinating perspective on leadership, performance and innovation, based on his mix of experiences from sport, the military and industry. Here he explains why and how a rugby team might be a good source of helpful learnings. So if you think about what a sports team ultimately is in, in, in any sport, it's just a group of people trying to achieve an objective. That's all it is. And I think that ultimately most business units, most SMEs are exactly the same. It's a group of people working together to achieve something. I think the thing that's interesting about sport is that if we take rugby as an example, there is no product advantage it is purely about the culture. It is purely about the way in which players are recruited, uh, trained, coached, and the way in which they work together. Because my local first 15 could line up against Harlequins. The pitch is flat. It's 15 on 15. The ball is the same. As much of the advantages that you would see in business are kind of stripped back as far as possible. And it's purely about the individuals at play. And so what we do with the Harlequins Business Academy is take the insights that we gather from professional sport, from obviously the first team environment, how they choose people, how they select uh, individuals, for example, um, and how they coach and how they develop them, and then take those to organisations to help them solve problems. Whilst there are some similarities and some obvious differences between rugby and business, we'll endeavour to avoid indulging ourselves in the technicalities of rugby and instead try and focus on the insights that best translate into a corporation. The big themes may not be totally surprising or new, but there are some interesting twists and some details we hadn't heard before that highlight some of the opportunities for improving performance in the business environment. For example, both Paul and Rod stress the importance of having a crystal clear vision, which I guess is not new news. What's interesting is the way in which they talk about it as driving everyone's behaviours every day. They also talk about thinking about your people as your most valuable asset and understanding what makes them tick in order to get the most out of them. They also take a rigorous yet creative approach to optimising processes and metrics. And they're also, it's also interesting how they talk about preparing individuals and empowering people to respond autonomously in tricky situations. All good lessons, I think. To provide some structure for the conversation, we loosely follow the logic of our book, Stretchonomics. From our research, the first important but common sense finding is to succeed, you need to know what you want to achieve, but also be clear about what it is you're prepared to do to get there. These two elements need to be aligned. There's no point in setting yourself a challenging goal if you can't back it up with the necessary resources or commitment. If you do manage to get ambition and commitment aligned, then we call this getting into the stretch zone and it's where you find your successes. We then explored the common factors behind individuals, teams, and organizations that managed to get into the stretch zone and stay there. We identified seven common factors. The first letters of each were cleverly engineered to spell out stretch. <laughs> to explain them, let's take the example of any of us deciding to make a New Year's resolution to get fit. First up are the S and the T, which stand for scope and target. The target is the defined endpoint. So it may be to lose a stone in weight, to drop a dress size, or complete a race in a certain time. It's the metric you set yourself. The scope defines how you're going to get there. And there can be several options. You could choose to start running, get into road cycling, 
sign up to fitness lessons or a combination of these. It's important when you set your S&T, you're being stretching, but at the same time realistic about what you can commit to. No point in aiming to run a three-hour marathon if you've never run before and can only train at weekends. Yeah, if only I'd known that a few years back. Maybe that's where I went wrong. Moving on, R stands for resource. So in our example, it's how much time you commit to training or how much money you have to invest in kit. D E stands for execution. How will you go about achieving your goal? What sort of training plan will you use? Should you be doing other activities to build your strength? Is there a diet or nutrition plan that will make the difference? T stands for techniques. These are skills and capabilities. Do you need to hire a personal trainer or read up on the best technical approach for your challenge? All of these speak to the rigor and creativity of your approach to your challenge. They need to be designed to deliver to your specific goals. Final two factors, the C and the H, relate to the mental side of your commitment. C is for courage, not just the guts to sign up for the challenge in the first place, but the day-to-day courage you need to go on a training run on a cold, wet morning or not having a beer after a tough day at work. And finally, H is for hunger, retaining the motivation to keep going. If you drift too far away from your goal, then you lose motivation to continue training. And if it feels too easy, that can also result in a loss of motivation. You need to measure and feel your progress along the journey in order to stay hungry. And it's why the weekly weigh-ins are so effective at any weight loss club. So that's the seven dimensions of stretch. Our research shows you need to consider all seven to have the best chance of success. And you need to be aware of your potential Achilles heels because nobody's great at all seven. These seven dimensions are as true for business and organizations as they are as individuals. And as we'll hear, they're also true of an elite sports team like Harlequins. We started with asking both, both individuals, what makes a high-performing team tick and perform consistently at a high level? Now, they could have answered anything, but they were both clear. Clarity. I think the first thing is perhaps the most obvious is you need clarity yourself about what it is you're trying to achieve uh, and what that looks like, what that tastes like, what that feels like. And then you need clarity about how you can deliver that messaging, um, who's accountable within it, what their role in it would be, uh, what your role in it would be, and what the players' uh, role in it would be. So I think the first thing is to have a real um, kind of strong clarity in your own mind, clear, clear purpose uh, backed up with that. You know, what is, it, what is it that you're trying to achieve? How do you foster um, a belonging? So if, I, if I've got an idea that I think is great, um, but the rest of the staff don't agree with it and the players don't agree with it, then it's, then it's relatively pointless, you know? So as much as I've got clarity about what it is I'm trying to achieve, I also need to, to foster a belonging and a belief with the staff and, and the players uh, that this is the direction of travel that we want to go down. And with all of that, I think it's critical that everyone understands their role to make this function. The first point for me is creating clarity within the organisation. So what is it the team is trying to do? What's the vision for the future that they are working towards creating? And in every high-performing team I've worked with, uh, they've had an element in terms of strategic clarity. What is it they're working towards? And the good examples that I tend to use are um, Kennedy's vision for a man on the moon by the end of the decade, but equally Team Sky. You know, when they were founded in 2010, we're going to win the greatest cycling race on earth. We're going to do it clean. We're going to do it with a British rider and we're going to do it inside five years. And then everything you do contributes towards that. So you've got to have an element of clarity. And I think one of the mistakes in organizations that I work with is that leaders set the vision and then never talk about it ever again. And if it's really important, you'll talk about it all the time. I think what's really interesting about those clips is we started asking both of them what makes a high-performing team. So we didn't, we didn't give them any context. It was a broad question, what makes a high-performing team tick? And they both immediately jumped on this idea of clarity. And I think of all the things they could have chosen, that is in itself is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think it was clear from listening to them speak that the clearer the destination is, the clearer your vision is, the more freedom it gives everybody else in the organisational team the permission to contribute to where you're going, right? And, and, um, and, and do what they can to make it a reality. Which often doesn't happen in corporations, right? In the corporations, you often end up with a high, ill-defined purpose and vision, and no one knows quite how to chip in to contribute towards that vision. Yeah, so, and Rod said, if it works well, you're talking about it constantly, 
I'd say more than that, if it works well, you're just acting upon it. You're not talking about it. It's just driving your behaviours day to day. And it's rare that we see that happen. And as we'll hear a bit later, that idea that a vision and values is something that lives every day through everyone in the organisation is a real difference apart from all, from, I'd say, apart from a, a few corporations who would be the exception, someone like a Nike or a Red Bull or, or some of the guys we've spoken to at Facebook. They, maybe they've got it or maybe some startups, but it does feel like that's, that's a very different set of, uh, of values. Yeah, I think a lot aspire to it, but very few achieve it. Defining what it is you want to achieve is important, but it's not the only thing in setting a, a vision or a, a target. Paul talks a bit about why you want to do it, which I think is probably more important and in the corporate world, I think, more overlooked. I think that's right. I think motivation is where you go when things get a bit tricky. Certainly, that was the research findings from, from the book. And I think both he and Rod talk about it quite eloquently here. I think, I mean, you know, what, what people do, people understand, like, we're a rugby team. You know, it's, it's clear to see what we do. How we do it is, you know, our style of attack, our style of defence, uh, how we train and so on. But why we do it is yeah. the thing that you want to get people in. You know, the, the idea is not to get people bought into what you do. It's to get people bought into why you do it. You know, well, why Harlequins? Why do you choose to play the way that we want to play? Why is it important to you? And why is your role important to the team? And, and the more that we uh, develop, I think, a higher purpose um, or the rationale or the reasoning for, for why we are here and why it's important for you and why it's important to us, because the why is an emotional response and emotional responses drives human behavior. And I think if you, if you start coming in with, um, you know, we mentioned there, statistical, logical information, you know, that's your kind of front part of your brain, but you want to get deep into your brain. I think it's your limbic, I think, but you want to get deep, deep into your limbic brains and, and, and talk to the emotional side of the body, which is, which is language. Which is which is a romanticism, which is creativity, which is enjoyment, um, and then using that to try and drive and compute the information, the statistical information that you want to give them. So, you know, key things as a coach for me, you know, I'm a storyteller. I use metaphors, analogies, and that kind of stuff. And it, it's really to use like a like a hook to get the information into their players, and then support it with some statistical evidence. But but it's important, I think, to have uh, the order of your thinking around the why, the, the, the emotional response, and then give them the, the empirical data to support it. I think it's, it's hugely important because it, it pulls on the heartstrings of people. It gives them a reason to commit to this goal. Um, and I didn't fully complete, actually, the Team Sky vision because the final part of it is, and in doing so, inspire a million people to take up cycling. That's what they were sort of seeking to do. Um, now, Simon Sinek is one of the sort of people that's kind of, uh, I guess, probably brought this kind of reason why stuff into the fore. Um, when I dug underneath the surface to sort of find out about it um, and find out kind of where it all comes from, it actually comes from um, a chap called Viktor Frankl. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, he was an Austrian psychotherapist who was interned in Auschwitz, uh, during the Second World War. And because he had medical training, he was told to look after the, the, the patient, or the prisoners um, that were sick. And what he noticed was that if someone had an enduring reason and a purpose to get through this experience, um, they would find reserves of strength that they didn't know that they had. But the moment someone lost that reason to keep going, that sort of higher purpose, um, they, they died very, very quickly. And his higher purpose was to take what he'd learned about uh, his experience in Auschwitz and take it out to the wider world. And he, 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 he effectively invented a branch of therapy called logotherapy, um, which is about effectively understanding like what does your life actually mean to you? What's important to you? I think it's lazy thinking, you know, to get a bit philosophical here, I think it's lazy thinking to go you know, there is a sort of single meaning for life for all of us. I think that we all have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we want to work towards? What is it that we want to pursue and go after that? Um, and that's where I think sort of purpose becomes so important. Wildly different examples there. But I think what's interesting is we hear a lot 
from big businesses talking about purpose when they're talking to their shareholders or they're talking to their consumers or customers. So it's external facing. I think what's interesting is the way in which within a sports team or with, uh, within a high performance team, you use purpose to drive the internal workings of the team, to in, drive greater motivation within the team, which drives performance. So it's, in some ways, a, a lot of the corporate stuff is perhaps looking at the wrong dimension of purpose uh, when, you, when you listen to these two guys talking. Yeah, it sounds like almost the glue that keeps the team together. Paul went on to talk about what in the book we call scope, um, which is sort of the ultimate purpose and the frame of reference. He talks about Harlequins, wanting to make Harlequins the place where players come to have their very best rugby experience, which is quite an interesting concept. Let's listen to what he had to say. People talk about bonding and, and that kind of stuff. You know, I suppose as a, as a, as a higher purpose in organisation, you know, for my ultimate aim uh, at, at Harlequins would be, is that this is players' best experience in rugby. You know, and we're not where we want to be yet because um, best experiences comes through times on field, times off field. You know, there's no point being a great set of lads off the field and having great memories, having a beer from time to time if we don't win on the field. You know, so we, we do understand about what we're here to do. Um, but, I, but I do think that if people have a deeper understanding of each other and understand about what makes them tick, understand about their family and what's important to them, their kids, their mum, their dad, their personal circumstance, and so on, you're more willing to give more of yourself. You know, it's, it's altruism. You know, fundamentally, it's paying it forward. You know, you, you, you want to do something for your mate. You know, people generally want to be good people, you know, and, and particularly part of recruitment is making sure that the first thing we look for is to be a good person. You know, I know it's often said the All Blacks, the no dickhead rule, but, it, but it's so true. You know, you want to get the right people in the building that have got a, a positive attitude, uh, that bring good energy, that are coachable, therefore they've got ambition, uh, that have a work ethic, because then makes makes things easier. You know, if everyone's, if everyone's pointing the same direction to start off with, it's a lot easier to get them all aligned into, into a singular thought and purpose. I think that idea of being the place where the players come to have their best rugby experience is really, really smart because it brings together the role of the individual, their motivations, the team and winning. And I think that is really interesting an idea and it could be quite nickable for a corporate or a large team. That idea that you're all in it together is, I think is quite an exciting one. Yeah, I think it is interesting, but in reality, in the corporate world, how often have we genuinely seen that? I'd suggest rarely, if ever. I think rarely rather than if ever. But I do think the teams, the real high-performing teams we've worked with over the years, they have had that sense where they are bound to each other and they are trying to achieve something, something better. And I think actually, interestingly, they're the ones where the leader of that team or that business unit has been a lot more directional and a lot clearer around where they're going. So I think there is a link there. Yeah, it's also been when there's a sense of crisis or the sense that the team's up against it or... They're slightly outside the core of an organisation. I think it's easier for them to create that spirit. I think one of the challenges for big organisations is that not everyone is pointing in the same direction. Not everyone does come to work for the same reasons. And I think that's an important difference between the world of elite sport and the world of business. Next, we hear Paul talk about values. Now, again, this is a corporate... You know, we're all used to corporations having their values. What's really interesting is how they're used to try and drive performance rather than something that's passive that feels like you should have. And I think there's some really interesting insights that almost any corporation could learn from the way in which this team use their values. In terms of the, the key messaging, say like our identity of fast, hard and finish, it's one thing to put something on a wall. Uh, and you know, the first week you see it on a wall, it's interesting, it's fresh, you'll see people stand there and look at it. But by week two, by week 10, by week 20, it's done. It's just, it's just a noise on the wall. So I think it's important that whatever you, whatever you believe in, whatever it is that you stand for, the, the key is repetition. And the key is through not just the language of what it is that you use and, and how often you say it. It's how much you bring it to life and how much you actually um, demonstrate and elicit those behaviors for yourself. Um, so, to, so to put our, our language in context, so fast, hard finish is meant to... I suppose, resemble who Harlequins are. We want to play fast. We want to be up-tempo. Uh, we want to play with, a, with an expression about us. But, but fast for a loose-head prop or a tired prop who are you know, 125 kilo kind of characters that you know, couldn't stay no to seconds. These kind of guys, fast for them is different to what fast is to our, to our wingers, right? So our wingers who might be able to run 10.1 meters per second, 
fast to them is running 10.1 meters per second. If they run 9.6, they're cheating themselves, they're cheating the team, they're cheating the crowd. For a prop, he can't do that. But fast for him is fast over the engagement line in the scrum. Fast for second row is, is, is lateral to vertical speed in the lineup. Fast for back row for Chris Robshaw is going back to his feet quickly to contest the breakdown and so on. So, so it means something else. On top of that, fast is how we want to start the game. We want to start fast. Uh, fast for the for the block of the season. We want to start fast at the beginning of the season. So the language there is easy for us to try and um, draw parallels to it to every facet of what we do. We call one of our training days a fast day. We call one of our training days a hard day. Um, and and we, we try and bring it to life all the time. And, and what we're going to start uh, when we re, re, reconvene the season is we're going to have effectively an identity meeting every week where we're going to draw back the the images that we see in the game, the vision that we have in the game of what does fast, what does hard, what does finish look like? Are we living up to who we said we were going to be? So I can elaborate about hard and finish, but hopefully you get the essence there that we, we, we try to draw it down to every single person can be fast. Hard as being hard to beat, hard as being uh, hard on ourselves in terms of critical feedback, hard as being hard in the contact areas, hard as how hard we train, finish, finish every chance, finish the lift, finish the rep, finish the practice, uh, finish the tackle, you know, uh, finish the try, all those kind of things. When you hear us train, you're going to hear a lot of fast. You're going to hear get off the line hard. You're going to go hit hard. You're going to hear, you're going to hear easy words, which brings it to life. So it's not, it's not just three words on a wall. It's something that's in us. It's something that you feel. It's something that's, you can taste it when you walk into the club. And that, that's, that kind of, for me, is more real than just having a nice slogan with a nice uh, jazzy kind of background on the wall. We've been talking about how culturally as a club, that it's not just you know the, the rugby entity and, and the commercial side, how better aligned we can be. We're a split site operation, which I guess is, is much more commonplace in the, in the business world than in a rugby environment. It's how, again, we, we make sure that those things are aligned. Like There's going to be things that we do in a rugby context that are very specific because of the nature of what we do. And there'll be things in a business context that'll be very specific in the nature of what they do. But the, the vision or the values about who we are, how can you, what would fast, hard finish look like, for example, to, to a, a commercial side, to, a, to the marketing department? You know, could, could fast, could that, could that be interpreted as um, creative, energetic, um, you know, fancy kind of, of, of presentations, hard, you know, hard on the deadline that they need to get things in for, uh, hard on the sell, maybe I, I don't know, or, or finish just close the deal, or finish things on in a timely manner, or finish things with a style that's befitting Quinn. You know, I, I think using the language is 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 can be done, and I'm you know I'm, I'm spitballing here, but something will resonate out of that language for for each of those departments. There's a couple of things in there, aren't there? There's first one is how do you keep it alive over time, rather than as Rob was saying earlier, you know, you have an exercise where you define what your values are, you write them on the wall. And then no one pays any attention after the first few weeks. I think it's really interesting the fact that it's almost embedded into their training sessions and their almost their daily behaviours. That idea of an identity meeting. Imagine having that as in a large corporation where you're constantly evaluating: Are you showing up with the right values? And the other thing I think was really interesting is how do you make something that can be quite high level and abstract relevant and engaging for every individual in the team or organisation? And I, again, I don't think. I've seen that done enough in the corporate world. So you're sat there with these big words uh, on a page or on a wall, and you don't know what it means for you if you work in marketing or if you work in HR, if you work in sales. And it should be relevant to everybody, but clearly Harley Quinn spend time making sure that everyone knows what it means for them. And they're almost involved in defining what it means for themselves. I think that's right. I mean, I've, I've certainly worked in situations where we've been looking at defining values. All the effort goes on finding the clever words, not thinking about the implications and the meanings and how they're going to be applied, which feels like we've got the effort the wrong way around, perhaps, in the past. Next up, he talks us through the process that he went through to get to some of the, that sort of vision and values. And I think what's interesting is he followed a very similar process, something you'd be all familiar in a, if you're in a large corporate, the idea of engaging stakeholders and working it over a period of time. I think for, for the fast, hard finish, you know, when I came into the club, you know, what I think one thing I needed to do was we need to change. And we needed to change almost for change's sake. You know, the players need to feel the environment is different. So almost everything they did in the pre-season the year before I joined, we turned everything on its head just so that it felt different, felt fresh. A lot of these guys have been in the club for anywhere between six and 12 years. So we wanted them to feel it was different because we can't change the training facility too much. 
We can't change the access to the pitches that we have. You know, the gym is the gym, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted things to feel different. We got rid of dress codes. We got rid of discipline codes and put the pressure on the players to, to have their own discipline and, and manage that themselves. But the fast, hard and finish, I kind of had this idea around it. And it's, it's borrowed really from Chip Kelly, a famous coach. And we then tried to put down three or four key values or behaviors to it. I then spoke about this with a group of senior players that I was uh, familiar with, um, so the likes of Rob Shaw and so on. And we kind of sold the idea to them, sold the idea to the coaches uh, and the support staff, got some commonality of thought, and we changed some things that we did. And then we sold that to the wider group. Now we're a year and a half in or two years into our, to a, into our journey. There's a lot more um, communication from bottom up and top down in terms of trying to get a more congruent and aligned uh, opinion about what it is that we stand for. I think listening to um, to Paul there, what's interesting is how even once you've agreed what the vision and the values are, it evolves. It constantly evolves as the organisation learns what it means to have those values. And I think that's a really interesting thought. Yeah, I think all too often an organisation will set a strategy or a target and it gets locked in for a couple of years, five years, whatever it is. And it doesn't change. There's no feedback loop. You know, you're learning all the time. So maybe there's a need to adjust it, evolve it, push it forward, you know, develop it. It's quite dynamic. Uh, and it kind of ties into what Rod was saying about how in a VUCA world, particularly as we are post-COVID, perhaps it's unhelpful to have a, a vision and values that are set in stone. And actually, maybe you need something that's a little less um, rigid, a bit more fluid, a bit more dynamic and allows you to move with the times. I think it's true. I think in lots of in lots of big companies sometimes that strategy vision values it's almost something you check off it's nailed down it's done we move on to the day-to-day and that, you get that's where you get that disconnect between the vision and actually what the day-to-day is all about it's one of those things that sort of get talked about a lot the ability to thrive in the VUCA world is dependent on your ability to adapt to the changing circumstances and to sort of demonstrate agility but often that that agility, that way of thinking needs to be embedded within the team, within the people in your organisation. And I think it's a real balance. I think it's okay for people to become a little bit wary of change from time to time and feel that they're in an environment that's psychologically safe enough for them to share that and not feel like they're not part of the sort of guiding coalition for that organisation, to feel that, you know, it's okay to share an open, honest and frank view. Um, but equally, you know, everyone has an opportunity to vent and then it's like, right, okay, so what are we going to do about this? How are we going to get back to work? Because um, you're right, the environment has changed. What are we going to do that's, what are we going to do about it fundamentally? So if that's about where we want to go as an organisation, the question is, is how are we going to get there? What's it going to take? What level of commitment uh, is it going to take to, to get there? And this is where we look at some of the other dimensions of our model. First up, we'll talk about resource. I think it's always really interesting that people, often the default position is to fall back on resources as being a reason for a lack of or poor performance. Um, But I would argue that some of the best resourced, or in terms of some of the most resource becomes very badly spent when it's sort of thrown at an organisation without really sort of focusing on it. I think it creates a fertile ground for waste. So I I don't believe in the assumption that more resources equals better performance. To me, by and large, resources are kind of uh, fixed. Um, There's probably not a huge amount you can do about them. You kind of have what you have. Um, And what I'm interested in are what are interesting and different ways in which people have used what they've got, whether that be time, manpower, capital, in order to deliver an outstanding performance. So, yeah, I'm interested in football. I'll look at kind of Liverpool. I'll look at the Manchester cities and I'll look at the culture that's being created in those environments. But equally, I'm curious to understand why is Sheffield United doing so well? You know, why are they competing for a Champions League place? You know, why did Leicester win? And sometimes these things can be a bit more difficult to sort of get under the surface of. But there's something different going on there. There's something else at play. Um, And I'm kind of curious to understand sort of how they are. And I suspect often it revolves around a different way of thinking about their resources, a different way of approaching it. And frankly, like not not worrying sort of too much about it. It's like, well, if the resources are fixed, you know, it's a bit like trying to argue with, with gravity. There's nothing we can do about it. we kind of got to work within those constraints. And certainly within the military, um, 
I've worked in environments where we were hugely resource constrained, but often it it meant that people had to think differently and adapt to their environment and change what they did in order to do the very best they could. And I think that it creates a remarkable opportunity for innovation when you are resource constrained because, frankly, you've got to think differently about things. I think the idea of looking at resources of being fixed is, can be quite helpful, actually. Um, and maybe in the whole scheme of things, they're not that movable, even in the corporate world, which forces you to think about not, you know, how do I cut costs, but how do I get more from more limited resources? How do I squeeze more out of my assets and my people? And I think that might lead to a stretching of resources. How do you make your resources go further? Rod talks about not arguing with gravity. I don't think you argue with resources. You work out how you stretch them. Well, I think that's what's interesting in the rugby world because, of course, there's a salary cap, right? So everyone's got access to the same levels of resource. And what that means is to get a competitive edge, you've got to look at all the other things. And I think that's where rugby as a sport is actually quite interesting from a corporate perspective because there's this almost taking resource out of the picture and saying, actually, it's all the other things that will make the difference. When you listen to Paul talk, it's clear that in an elite sports team, you kind of have to treat your people, your players as your key asset and understanding how you can squeeze more out of them. Let's hear how Paul goes about getting the most out of his key assets, his players. I think on any given team, you know, let, let, let's assume that most people have equal resource. There's, there's a salary cap to try and balance out things and, you know, there's debate about that, but let's say all things being equal, there's, there's a salary cap. So everyone has access to a similar sort of level of talent of players. Everyone has a similar amount of international players. Everyone has a similar amount of young talent. Everyone, let's say, more or less has a coaching intellect that's of relative equality. Everyone has the same access to, to, gym, um, to gym and lifting uh, and uh, intellect in those areas. So what's, what's the missing ingredient? And it's always the physical things that people look for generally. And, and we wanted to look at, the, I suppose, the more the mental side of the game and the emotional side of the game and how can we arouse a team uh, to perform on, on a consistent week-in, week basis. And, of course, we're not where we need to be yet, but, but it's, a, it's a work in progress and we're pointing that direction. All the KPIs and, and things like that, of course we have those. Uh, and, you know, in terms of feedback to the players, uh, they get their, you know, empirical data they get you know, what they did in the game how many numbers they made uh, and so on and it's a point of discussion but i but i also want to see the the intent in their actions you know it's great if you if you make 10 tackles and they're all quite passive and you allow momentum against you well i've made 100 percent tackles 10 out of 10 great but i've not been effective but if i make seven or eight out of ten but seven or eight tackles are stopping people knocking them back and turning over the ball i'd rather take the seven or the eight than the ten you know, so we've got to be careful that we don't go so hard down a statistical route where the number is the ultimate goal when it's not. You know, in rugby, it's a, it's a game of territory fundamentally. And to control territory, you need to win as many of those little battles as possible. So for us, the, the intent and the action is more important than the pure um, numerical value at the end of it. Looking about self-actualization, and, and the first thing is self-realization. You know, you have to understand yourself and your inner values and your inner drivers. Now, we've got a group of 45 players, give or take, say. Um, we've got 45 staff down at Surrey Sports Park where we train. So we've got 90 people with different values, different drivers, deep, uh, deep motivational drivers. What gets them going? How do we try and find the link between their personal driver, their personal value, and the team's drivers, the team's values, the club's values, the club's drivers? And the important thing is, is understanding that everyone is different and accepting it, which, which is great. But then we need to try and find is how can they link that thought process, their personal value, to the team's value. Because whatever your personal values are, you're going to do. So I think it's, it's very, very important that we try and find out what's important to each other and then try and see how we can use that knowledge and information to try and get a, a physical and emotional and mental response in terms of training capacities. Listening to that, what's really interesting is how if you start thinking about your people as being your key asset, it sort of changes the rules of the game. It's interesting to listen to him talk about how he tries to understand what the individual's values are as well as how they connect with the team's values. And I think that is really, and how those two things can combine to drive enhanced performance. And I think that level of assessment and rigour that goes into that thinking is quite different in a sports team. It's clear that his role as a coach is trying to squeeze the maximum he can out of each individual, unlocking their potential, 
so that the whole ends up being greater than the sum of the parts. And clearly, if you're going to do that, you've got to be quite strong around emotional intelligence to really sort of have the skills and the curiosity to spend time with the individuals and understand what makes them tick for the benefit of the, of the whole organisation. And we'll hear a bit more about emotional intelligence a bit later on. Yeah, it's a totally different way of thinking about productivity. In large companies, productivity equals cutting costs. Here, we've got enhanced productivity of an organisation based on investing in the people and creating greater alignment, making the system work better. So we've covered off scope, we've covered off target, we've covered off resource. We now get to E and T, execution and techniques. So for a rugby club, execution is really about your playing style, the set moves you might have. And techniques might be training, it might be skills, or it might even be ways of thinking. What's interesting is earlier we heard Paul talk about the playing styles. Here we'll hear him talk a little bit about the ways of thinking and the extent to which uh, they go to try and learn from other sports, uh, other elite uh, outfits to try and enhance their own performance. Here he references rugby league, other rugby teams, football, all to try and improve the performance of the team. Anything that we're doing has been done before as, as inventive and it might be the first time that someone in Harlequins has heard of it and it might, you think, originate from your head. But it's been done somewhere, somewhere before, you know. So um, I think it's good to, to create outside links. You know, we, we, as a, we as a club have a relationship with, with the New Zealand Rugby Union. So, for example, the weekend, um, you know, we've been speaking to Leon McDonald and uh, Aaron Major, two coaches for the Highlanders and the Auckland Blues. And, you know, what is their interpretation around the breakdown laws that are changing? Um, what, do they, what do they focus on? How do they change it? And on the back of it, you know, Aaron's requested that we do effectively like a red teaming, so a, a thorough analysis of the Highlanders from a psychological and a, a technical point of view and what we would focus on during the week. And even just by the way that he asked the questions, you can, you can look into the, you know, you can take a, I suppose, a five-minute sit in his mind about how he thinks about the game because the questions are very specific and they're phrased in such a way that that's how he's going to, you know, speak to his players, speak to his team and drive how his staff goes. So I think from that, you know, we try and take things there. You know, you read a lot of stuff around some of the great, most successful coaches in, in the history of any sport, you know, like Phil Jackson with basketball, for example. I know The Last Dance is kind of all the rage on Netflix, but I've you know, not recently since finished Eleven Rings, which is Phil Jackson's kind of autobiographies period and talks there about some of his coaching modalities. Uh, you know, the NRL, um, I you know, spent a lot of time with the Melbourne, Melbourne Storm um, and so on. So I think it's about building relationships, who you speak to, what you can see, uh, football, speaking to Frank Lampard, Michael Carrick, and again, it's just what are you doing? How do you approach these scenarios? And some of it isn't always on field. Some of it is around culture development. Some of it is around uh, personal development for staff. Some of it is around um, you know, selection, retention versus rotation and, and that kind of stuff. So there's loads of things that we can learn. I think that, again, this is a really, this is a key element that people, that certainly high-performing individuals have is they have this clear concept of their competence, often referred to as their sort of circle of competence. They know what they're good at and they really know what they're not good at. So they know where to go to people and ask for help. If you think of your sort of circle of competence as a bit like a kind of clearing in a forest, um, people that read a lot, that seek to learn about other environments so that they can fold them back into how they do business, expand their circle of competence. They're still clear on the boundary, but that expanding your circle of competence means that you expand that clearing in the forest, which means that the sort of more you know, the more you realise you don't know. It's interesting to hear Paul suggest that there's no such thing as a new idea, which I think we hear <laughs> quite, quite often. And that um, even though you've come up with something out of your head, it probably has been thought of by someone else somewhere else. And there's no harm in that at all, right? Uh, it's interesting that... Earlier, we spoke about them being quite internally focused. This is probably the one example where Paul spoke openly about overtly looking around, trying to find those ideas that others have had, the techniques that others use, uh, and putting a lot of effort into that. And again, I think the corporate world can learn a lot um, from elite sport and think about how other kinds of industries work rather than think about, this is the way we've always done it, therefore, this is the way we're always going to do it. You'd never hear that phrase at Harlequins. It'd be great if you had 
teams, either from separate corporates, almost tearing down this idea of red teaming is a military term where you almost tear down each other's strategy. Wouldn't it be interesting if you had one corporate almost handing their plans over to another corporate in a separate field and sort of giving it, giving it a bit of a hard time, like you heard him talking about uh, doing that analysis on those New Zealand teams. It's kind of, it feels like there's an opportunity to really uh, think a bit more broadly and a bit more creatively in how you make a really bulletproof strategy and, and approach. Yeah, great. I think the key to unlocking that is curiosity, right? You need curious people who want to go out and learn. I think curious is a great word. You know, curious is a great word as a human being to, to be about life, to be about, you know, developments, you know, you know growth mindset uh, and, and so on, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. We've got a giant picture. I'm not in our office here, I'm in the, in the stoop, but we've got a giant picture of that in our, in our staff office. Because I, I want the staff to understand that we ask the players to improve every week. We ask them to physically improve year on year. We ask them to improve on performance week on week. We ask them to adopt an individual skills program, which is personal development. Uh, we ask them to go and do something, which I think is the most important thing, is, is, is something outside of rugby, you know, be it networking, be it uh, uh, another form of education, uh, be it employment, you know, someone doing one day a week somewhere. Because I think better people will make better rugby players, fundamentally. But I, it's also preparing them for life after rugby. So we ask about them all the time. For the players, they, they don't necessarily need to be so curious, but they have to have a want to improve. As we'll hear in these next couple of clips, I think what's interesting is the amount of time and effort that goes into planning for tough decisions when they come. I think this is where we need to call out that in the military and in sport, there is a clear difference between sort of those sorts of teams and big business teams. In the military and sport, you spend the majority of your time in trading mode for a relatively short burst of performance. In corporates, you can argue it's totally the other way around. You spend most of your time in performance mode and a relatively small amount of time in training. Having said that, I think there are some ideas from both Paul and Rod that we can, that we can learn from. It's not that we accept failure, but we embrace failure. So in training, if, if training is perfect, the only person that walks away from training feeling satisfied is me, in the sense of training was perfect, we've waxed it. In reality, the older I've got as a coach, the more experienced I've got as a coach, and I realized that I actually makes me nervous because the game's not going to be like that. The game's going to throw curveballs and things at them. The secondary to that is our, our, long, our longitudinal goal as coaching staff is to improve the player. So our, our goal is to try and how can we get a player that's, you know, has got 10% of growth in them? How do we eke out that 10% over a period of time? And how fast can we do it? And how sustained can it be? And so on. So if the player is always operating within a comfort zone, that he's never going to get challenged. He's never going to improve a skill set. He's never going to dare to be great. And, and we have to try and put the players through um, chaos, uh, through stressful situations to see if they can master those scenarios and almost train. In fact, we do. We, we train a level above the intensity of the game to put the players through a situation that when the game comes in theory, the game should happen at a pace where they're very comfortable with. They've seen those pictures before and so on. So the idea is more that training should not be perfect. Key thing for me is that idea of devolved responsibility, pushing it down onto the, onto the players in his case. And I think there's some lessons there for organisations that are trying to become less hierarchical and equipping the people who are actually doing the day jobs to make decisions on their feet so you can respond to unexpected uh, situations when they actually arise. At the heart of it, that's what all this thinking around, all the talk around agile teams, agile organisations, VUCA world, at the heart of it is that devolved sense of responsibility. And to, to do that well, you kind of need to think through the difficult situations, I guess. Yeah, and be prepared for them. There are some really simple techniques that I found to be incredibly helpful. And so one of the things that we used to do in the Marines was we would, we would stress test our plans. So if we were going to, I don't know... Uh, recapture a village from Taliban control. We would lay out on the ground a kind of model of this village. And guys would spend a long time on this. This looked really, really good. Um, and then you would have the various company commanders or troop commanders kind of walk through where they'd be at different points in the battle. And then you'd get to a sort of like river and then there'd be a question of, right, now at this point here, we have a decision to make. And the commander would go, well, if this is going on, I'm going to do this. If this is going on, I'm going to do this. And you kind of explore a variety of those almost like different tributaries that the plan could end up going down. And if it was something that you could expect to happen, there would be, you would have almost kind of tested that with the organization. 
I guess when you take a step back, one of the key things that strikes you listen to both Paul and Rod is just how much rigour goes into the E and the T, the execution of the techniques. You know, the, the level of thought, the level of detail, the level of planning is hugely impressive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that focus on is what we're doing now going to get us to the right outcome? Can we think ahead into, into the future around some of these scenarios? It really focuses the mind to think about what could be. Yeah, there's no sense of complacency, is there? There's no sense that whatever we did last season is going to work this season or next season. Almost the opposite. The ingoing assumption is it won't be good enough. If you stand still, you go backwards. And I'm not sure there's that intent or focus in big corporate organisations. One important dimension of execution techniques is competitive intelligence and understanding who your competitors are, how your competitors are evolving, what they're up to, and also how they see you. And I don't think from our experience, Nick, over the years, that our corporate clients put quite enough effort into doing that. Yeah, I think it's right. We talk, we hear um, Paul talk about red teaming. Rod mentioned it earlier. What, how, would you, how does your competition see you? How are they analysing you? And what are they expecting you to do? I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about how you go to market. Yeah, let's hear what he had to say. There's something I think on a, on a spectrum of, of, you know, thorough, thorough analysis on opposition, five, six games worth to, to maybe one game, you know, somewhere between that spectrum over the course of a week. Um, you might fluctuate at different times of the season. If you're really in the zone in terms of your own personal performance, your team is flying, you might emphasize a little bit more. You might come across a team that we don't play a lot. Say, say for example, we're going to European competition and we don't play one of those teams so often. The amount of analysis and awareness we want to try and generate around that team could be could be spectacular. It could be from going, um, you know, pictures and key, t- key details around each individual around the building, around the analysis room, in the changing room, around the medical room, uh, loops on, uh, on video screens about this team, uh, reinforcing key strengths, messaging on, on WhatsApp groups and so on, just to try and bring things to life, stuff on dinner plates around where they eat, again, just to make them aware of it we might heighten their arousal levels with stuff and to get people excited about champions cup or a big game or something again with with branding and, and what have you um i think i think the balance is always somewhere in between you know you, you have to you have to believe in what you're doing and have to believe in the sense that well the opposition have to stop this or the opposition have to try and find a way to go through our defense or the opposition have to find a competitive advantage somewhere around set piece and also, you have to give respect to the opposition that, that they are also thinking the same thoughts. You know, if we go back to what we mentioned earlier, if we assume that everyone has a similar level of playing quality, everyone has a similar level of coaching intellect, then you're always trying to find one or two opportunities where you can take an advantage. Um, so we would, I would say if you were to put a figure on it, we would probably be 60% us, 40% opposition in terms, of our, in terms of our detail of what we give. There's definitely weighted more to what we want to do, maybe 70-30. And the other bit would be about these are two or three key things we need to look out for the opposition. The final two dimensions of stretch that we'll look at are behavioural. We'll look at courage and hunger. I think because the world of rugby has this salary cap, the resources are equal, as we heard earlier. The behaviours become very important. The ability to take a risk and take the right type of risk um, becomes your competitive advantage. Linked to that directly, as we've heard on other podcasts, is how you view failure. And here, uh, we're here from Paul around the sort of the technical language that he uses to describe failure uh, and what failure means to him. I want the players to understand that when they go out there, that there's two key things to think about. There's an effort error. So if you don't work your balls off, then you're in trouble. And there's a skill error. So if you go flying off the line in a, in a system and someone half steps and you half miss the tackle, but the guy on the inside smashes them, then I'm actually really happy if your effort's been outstanding, but I'm going to help work you with your skill. Likewise, an attack, which might be a better, more easy example to understand, if someone tries an offload to score seven points and it doesn't quite work out and they go the length of the try, like happened against Sail Away and the score try in the bottom corner, I still want the people to have the courage to do an offload in, in, in the attacking zone. And sometimes it will lead to a try against us Sometimes it will lead to a try that we didn't score, and sometimes it will lead to absolutely nothing. But the, but the error is still the same error. The, the, the consequence of the error is different. But if we start putting the consequence above, the, above the, the desire to try and do something, then we're going to get the players fearful about trying and exploring something. And that goes against 
our DNA. That goes against what we are as a club. It goes against our fast, hard finish. You know, so our job is effort errors are non-negotiable. Skill errors is the coach's responsibility uh, with you to, to, to have a program in place uh, for you to put the effort in to develop those skills so that we can continue, continue an upward trend with those. We, we finished fifth last year, joined fourth last year, so we, we didn't win. You know, we lost in the semi-final of the Challenge Cup. You know, this year we're currently sitting seventh with nine games to go, and uh, we're in the final of the Premiership Cup, and, and you know, we, we still haven't won something. And, you know, the idea for me is you want to take away the burden of the results because, you know, I think you mentioned about Connor and the performance. But also fundamentally, you know, winning is what we're, we're here to do. You know, there's, there's, no one remembers second place, right? So we, we, we do want to win. Um, but we want to take away the constants of, right, this next block, we want to do this. We just talk about winning the next thing. The next thing might be the next contest in terms of a tackle and a carry. Next thing might be the scrum. Next thing might be a line-out. Next thing might be... That, that block of five phases of defence on our line or five phases of attack in their 22 or just the game in general uh, or win that day. You know, win that day when your body's sore and, you, and you're fighting it, win that day. Um, and uh, we, we try and bring it to a more micro level than, than a bigger thing about we're here to win the league, we're here to win the league. We talk about things internally, but, but the purpose is the process rather than the, 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 than the outcome. My key takeout from that, Nick, was the fact that some failure, in inverted commas, is kind of acceptable. It's clearly defined, but it's acceptable. And almost if you're not failing sometimes, you're probably not pushing hard enough. And I'm not sure that philosophy is shared in the corporate world. It's clear listening to both Paul and Rod that there is a ruthless focus on improvement, improvement of individuals, improvement as a team. But all the way through the conversation, there was a real tone of empathy about looking after each other. And I guess that's what comes to being part of a team sport. Within this whole idea of risk and courage and and, uh, and and trying to push yourself. It was interesting that the, the uh, concept of mental health popped up and we ended up having quite a, a long discussion around the way in which they look after each other as individuals, which further sort of helps the team. I think it all boils down to the fact that if you see your people as your key asset, of course you would do that. I still think it's not where it needs to be. And, you know, there was... You know, we, we are, you know, the, the downside, I suppose, of, of a rugby thing is the traditional rugby uh, stereotype is a alpha male sport, uh, invincible, you know, uh, we, we, don't, we don't cry, you know, we don't, we don't get hurt easily, uh, pretty robust, pretty tough. It's, it's the game itself demands a certain uh, desire or, or mental capacity to play because you do put your body through um, things that bodies aren't meant to be put through. You know, you have to train yourself to a, to, to a way to be able to withstand, you know, high-speed collisions, uh, multiple involvements. You know, we're one of the few sports that's a bit of everything. You know, you need, to, you need to be able to run fast. You need to have an endurance base. You need to be relatively strong. You need to be relatively agile. Uh, and you need to withstand contact. There's not many sports that have all those things in one go. So we've got, you know, multi-skilled athletes. Um, I, I think in terms of... I, I've seen growth in the last... I can think of probably four players in the last two years we've had conversations around mental well-being and health and we've had, if we can't support them in the way that we need to, then we've seen clinical help. Uh, and the most pleasing thing for me, I, I think, is the fact that they've actually come to me and spoken about it. Um, if not me, we put together a support group at the club whose job it really is to observe. You know, the coaches, your, your best tools as a coach are your, are your eyes. I know we've got all the statistical data and so on, but go back 30 years ago, you know, there wasn't videotape, there wasn't... DVDs or you know straight instant feedback through uh, through the cloud and through through the internet to see footage straight away. You have to rely on your eyes to coach from the run and give feedback to your athlete in athletics and rugby and football about what it is they're doing and how you can help improve them. So if we go back to our support staff, their best tool they've got is their eyes to look around and notice change of behaviour. If someone's normally upbeat and energetic, and then for two days they're down, then the questions have to be asked. And we have to try and you know go into into that play. And if we feel they're being reserved about something, sometimes it's just a bad sleep. Sometimes it's you know, more often it's just a bad sleep. It might be an argument with their wife or their kids during lockdown. Um, but it's it, it's something it's something around that where the more we observe into human behaviour, the more we open our eyes to the possibilities that people are complex complex things. Then we're going to see more. And, and if you see more, you've got to want to see more because if you close your eyes to it and you close your ears to it, you, you'll, you'll never see the wood for the trees. Finally, that leads us to hunger. 
I think if you consider your people as your key asset, as, as some of these elite teams clearly do, it becomes incredibly important to, to drive the motivation. Yeah, I think you need, and we heard from Paul and from Rod, that everyone in the club buys into the values of what they're trying to achieve. Um, I think it's harder when you're in a big organisation to give people that motivation to come to work in the morning that's over and above the salary. You know, it's like, how do you get people to buy into a bigger purpose? And you see it in startups and with, you know, small companies where there's a passion. People feel that they really are part of something, you know, and that's a huge motivation in its own right. That, that drives hunger. I think it's more difficult in a corporate world where, you know, the HR department's trying to play with, you know, a remuneration framework um, to keep people motivated. You need that sense of purpose over and above salary. But it's ironic that small organisations spend more time thinking about this stuff than large do, even when we know it's harder the larger the organisation. Yeah, I wonder if they even think about it. I wonder if it's just more innate. You know, you've got a small company that's being set up to do something. You know, that's probably what attracts you to the business in the first place, not the money. Uh, I think that's very hard to replicate in a big company. So, Justin, I can feel one of your trademark summaries of the key insights is brewing. Well, something's brewing. Let me have a crack. Look, as we said at the outset, the worlds of elite sport and business are just not the same. But there's clearly so much we can learn from the environment like Harlequins have created. For me, these are the key takeouts, which I think could probably be most easily translated into the corporate environment. First off is that creating utter clarity on the vision or destination. In business, you might call it the strategy. I think the real insight here is ensuring every individual in the organization understands how they contribute to it because this gives them the freedom to operate and express themselves day to day. Secondly, the need to get emotional buy-in to what the organization is trying to achieve. And this clearly requires effort to understand the values and motivations of each individual and how you can connect that to the corporate values and vision. This feels like a big win to me. It feels like those two things in combination help keep the vision, strategy and values alive. So they actually drive behaviors on a day-to-day basis. And it's not an exercise that you do every few years and gets forgotten after a couple of months. Yeah, I agree. My third sort of key takeout was when it comes to resources. If you consider your people to be your most valuable asset, then it transforms to how you treat them, uh, how much you invest in them. But I think most importantly, how much you get out of them. I mean, how many big businesses think this way? How many big businesses are focused on ensuring every employee reaches their potential? I'd argue more value is placed on the brands, IP, factories, customer relationships and routes to market than placed on the employees. So even a small shift in this direction could pay big dividends. I got quite excited about this, and I, I guess it's linked to the idea of giving your people the very best experience of their whole career. I think that's a really powerful idea. Imagine what a game changer that could be if it was the internal focus of a business or, or as a, of a team. What a way to attract and retain the very best talent. It feels such a powerful competitive edge. And, and for me, it feels like, hugely applicable for any kind of team leader. Yeah, great. Another key takeout for me was the power of combining rigour and curiosity. I was struck by the attention to every small detail, uh, as well as the desire to learn from the outside world. And even if you only learn one thing from the outside world, it could be the one thing that makes the difference, as long as you're rigorous in the way you apply it to your business. Over the years, I've always been struck by how people in big organisations tend to lose their curiosity over time, or their desire to expand their own minds. In Rod's terms, they lack the desire to increase their clearing in the forest. And finally, I know elite sports teams spend most of their time training, whereas businesses spend most of their time performing, but placing greater emphasis on equipping teams with the ability to respond to any situation. It feels like it's only going to become more important and more valuable. I think that feels like a good summary. And I think the only thing I'd add is the brutal honesty that comes through every conversation and interaction we've had with anyone from Harlequins or even um, anyone from elite sports. It's not only refreshing, but it also feels like it's one of the key ingredients for constant improvement. Maybe makes me think maybe we should all find the courage on a day-to-day basis to call out anything that falls below either an expected standard or feels out of line with visual values. Yeah, I agree. It's much easier to turn a blind eye. But as another coach, Ben Ryan, says, the standards you walk past are the standards you become. Yeah, I can't top that. So with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's a massive thanks to Paul Gustard and Rod Yap for their insights, their wisdom and their time, and also to the good people at Harlequins for helping making it happen. Bye for now.